Hello, and welcome to Renegade Files. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 56, The Broadhaven UFOs. In 1977, a Welsh grade school class of boys saw, from the playground at recess, what they described as a flying saucer above the trees. Immediately, this conjures vibes of the aerial school encounter, but unlike that event, both UFOs and aliens were seen by many more than just school kids in this Welsh seaside village. This is a case that involves a mass UFO sighting more than one encounter with possible extraterrestrials, a Royal Air Force base, a British Freedom of Information score, and detailed testimonies from several witnesses involved. In short, the Broadhaven UFO event is old school UFO gold, and we're gonna investigate it right here, right now. So travel with me to the chilly seaside cliffs of Wales, and together, We'll learn all about the Broadhaven UFOs. Part 1 The School. Some of the research here comes from the Netflix documentary called Encounters, so credit where credit is due. For the other sources used here, check out the Dark Intel files for this episode on Patreon. Link in the show notes. The country of Wales is part of the United Kingdom, and it sits at the southwest corner of England on the Irish Sea. It has a population of just over 3 million covers about 8,200 square miles, and has nearly 1,700 miles of coastline. It's mountainous with rugged cliffs along most of its shores. Wales has green, rolling, fertile farmlands and is rich in minerals and metals. The country has a distinctive culture rich in folklore, with human occupation that stretches back into Neolithic times. In many ways, life there is slower paced, simpler, and the traditional values of family, hard work, respect, and a reverence for the past still exists. Broadhaven is a village and seaside resort in the southeast corner of St. Bride's Bay, where it and the adjacent town of Littlehaven have a combined resident population of less than 1,400. But tourism adds large numbers of visitors who fill the beaches, inns, and pubs in the summer months. Friday, February the 4th, 1977 started out as a rainy school day for the kids at Broadhaven Primary School, but by mid-morning recess, the rain had stopped and the clouds had cleared and a group of boys had gathered in a corner of the playground to kick a ball around. One boy noticed something in the sky and he called out to the others. The football game was paused and the boys all looked up and saw a saucer with a dome on top just above the tree line beyond a field behind the playground. They ran closer to get a better look. 
right away the similarities of this sighting and the aerial school encounter are incredible. Both UFOs appeared at elementary schools, both seen by kids on the playground, and some of the aerial school kids were playing soccer as well. In both cases, one kid saw the UFO at first, then the rest all ran to get a better look. We covered the aerial sighting in depth on Renegade Files episode 8, the aerial school alien encounter. In my opinion, it's one of the most important UFO and alien events ever recorded, so check it out. Share it if you liked it. So at the Broadhaven school, the boys ran up onto a grassy hill at the back of the playground to get a better look at the object hovering just above the treetops, less than 100 yards away. Student Dave Davies, who had stayed inside at recess and missed the flying saucer because of it, was initially skeptical. He had heard all the talk among the other students who claimed to have seen it, but he didn't believe it all. After school, he was walking home and he decided to go to the top of the hill where the other boys had supposedly seen the object. As he crested the low ridge, he was shocked to see, as it rose into the sky above the trees, an object he says was silver, cigar-shaped, and about 45 feet long. As it rose, he could see the bottom of it and he realized it was actually round like a saucer. He watched it hover silently for a few seconds, but was overwhelmed with the instinct to flee, so he turned and ran home. The children went home that afternoon and told their parents what they had seen. Dave Davies' mother believed her son, and she contacted Randall Jones Pugh, who was both a family friend and a regional investigator for the British UFO Research Association, or BUFORA, which is like MUFON in the U.S., but with a cooler sounding name. Randall Pugh, and that's P-U-G-H, visited the location of the school sightings that weekend and with him came a reporter from the local newspaper. This person wrote the first articles on the story. On Monday morning when the kids returned to school, Headmaster Ralph Llewellyn separated each of the boys and had them write a summary and draw a picture of what they had seen. So here we have an element of this case which distinguishes it from the aerial school encounter. This separating of the children right away. This is crucial because at the aerial school, those kids were all gathered into a single room and each one in turn brought up before the group to tell their story. This incredibly poor decision made by the aerial school staff at that early juncture is one of the main criticisms of that event, and it's rightfully pointed to by skeptics as a clear possibility for the kids all taking details from each other and adding to the stories as they heard them, not to mention the fact that each kid was brought up to give their story in front of what amounted to the whole school. So you know kids are going to show off and try to outdo each other in that situation. Now, the aerial school drawings were all remarkable and similar, and the kids' stories were consistent, and I do believe they saw something otherworldly, but the way the school went about talking to them was a mess. It's too bad, really, and I said as much in that episode, because it was a catastrophe as far as a blown opportunity, but that's history. So in this case, the staff at the Broadhaven School did not do that. They didn't even give the kids a chance to talk to each other on Monday morning. 
they immediately got each one alone and had them draw and describe what they had seen. And this was before cell phones, and most kids of that age wouldn't have even talked on the phone. This was 1977, so it's unlikely that many of those kids talked to each other over the weekend, maybe a few. But the drawings are almost exactly alike when it comes to the flying object the kids saw. All draw the object as a low saucer shape, silver gray, with a red light on top, some kind of holes around the upper third. They all look the same. Same color, same shape, and same details. Some of the kids say they caught a glimpse of a creature after the UFO landed, and all of the kids who saw the creature describe it as having no real facial features, being tall, thin, and wearing silver, maybe having a face shield or something. So this brings up another point, and it gets a little confusing and conflicting as far as the timeline, because initially uh, I heard that the kids saw the saucer lift up above the trees, and then other kids talk about seeing it land, and I'm not sure the timeline of how that happened. You're dealing with kids from 1977, and we're looking at interviews with them from that time, so we don't have a real chronological order of events as far as the footage of what we have and the kids describing it. But the descriptions that the kids give are all consistent, and those descriptions carry over to other witnesses as well, which we will get to shortly, so stay tuned. Before we move on to the other witnesses, let's take a look at another aspect that plays a role here, or potentially does, and that is the notion of folklore. Wales is steeped in legend and folklore, and stories with deep cultural significance go back to the pagan roots of that area. The Welsh flag has a dragon on it, for goodness sake. Much of the ancient Welsh folklore was corrupted when their pagan gods were converted into kings and hero saints by the Christian church, and the old druid oral traditions were altered or lost. Wales gives us much of the Arthurian legend. But if we read the oldest written accounts, we find them pointing to a deep pantheon of fairies, monsters, and creatures from other worlds. Just a few examples are the Koraniad, a mysterious race of beings who plagued the area. The Tylewith Teg, or fairy folk, who came from the other world and were mischievous and frightening. And the Isbridion, also troublesome creatures who tended to play pranks on humans in waves or cycles every few years. You could spend years studying Welsh folklore, and many have, but the overall point here is that these fairy folk described by the old pagan traditions of this area are far from the friendly, cute, humanoid fireflies we think of when we hear the word fairy in a child's tale. That image came from the gilded parlors and manicured gardens of the Victorian socialites. The ancient Welsh fae were troublesome, known for playing mischievous pranks, came from another world, and were not to be trusted or offended, and were generally better left alone or respected if you had to interact with them. So the idea of people seeing and dealing with non-human intelligences and otherworldly beings is old news in Wales. 
It's possible, as others have pointed out, that the UFO and alien phenomenon may be the same perennial experience of the old pagan fairies or folklore creatures just interpreted through the paradigms of the time. Part 2. Outside of Class So it wasn't just the kids at school that day who saw a UFO. Overall, the Ministry of Defense and the nearby Air Force Base received about 450 eyewitness reports of either UFOs, physical aliens on the ground, or both. We'll go over a few of the most interesting. One of the most compelling witnesses in my mind is Mark Marston, a teenager at the time. And let me pause here and ask, what are the chances that one of these witnesses is named Dave Davies and another is named Mark Marston? Maybe it's a Welsh thing. So in 1977, in the weeks after the school sighting, Mark Marston was walking home along a gravel road just before sunset on the family farm, known as Coombs Farm. And this is south of the location of the school. The farm is in a rural setting, and the landscape is home to low stone walls, grass fields, sheep, cattle, hedges used as fencing, small wooded areas, and scattered collections of fruit trees. Mark was making his way along the narrow gravel roadway when he noticed a glowing light atop a ridge in one of the fields. He saw that the source of the glow was a large landed craft about 45 feet long, shaped like an upside down saucer. This matches the description, shape, and the size of the object seen by the elementary school kids just several days before. Mark moved cautiously along the roadside hedgerow, instinctively moving closer to the hedge for cover, but remaining at a length from which he could still see the glowing craft over the shrubbery top. It was about 40 yards away across a grass field, and where it sat at the top of the upward slope, it seemed to be on the ground, or hovering perfectly still inches above the ground. It made no sound. Then, in the quiet dusk, he heard a rustling in the foliage. On the road about 30 yards ahead, he watched a creature, seven feet tall or more, emerge onto the road. It wore what looked to be a tight silver suit, and he described it as having a dark tinted face shield like a motorcycle helmet visor. Mark stood, stunned. He had never seen anyone or anything that tall. The being started walking toward him. Mark turned and walked away quickly, frightened, knowing it wasn't human. He stopped at a fork in the road and turned back to see the creature still coming toward him, so he started to run. He stopped after a few dozen yards to look back once more and he saw that the creature had kept pace but was now stopped. It stood motionless and watched him. Mark then turned and ran home and that was the last he saw of the being. The following day, Mark and his father returned to the area and found, in the roadside mud, one footprint twice the size of a large man's. Three or four weeks later, Mark's aunt Pauline and Uncle Billy saw the same or a similar being on the farm in the same area. Pauline and Billy Combs were driving home one evening and their youngest child saw a glowing saucer following the car. The vehicle stalled and they watched a UFO pass by and vanish. 
Once it was gone, the car started again and they continued home in confusion. Pauline would later say she thought that she might be losing her mind. A few days later, Billy checked his cattle before going to bed and all 120 head of cattle were secure in the fenced field and the gate was securely locked. A few hours later, at 11 p.m., he was awakened by a phone call from a neighbor asking why all of Billy's cattle were in his field. Somehow, with no sign of vehicle tracks or fence damage on either property, or even a single cow hoof print, 120 cows had gone from one locked field to another on a farm miles away, seemingly instantly and without any explanation. So here we weave these threads back into the local area folklore because this is exactly the kind of mischievous prank the fairies of old were known for. This also reminds me of a story from Skinwalker Ranch where the farmer found that his bulls had somehow gone from a field and ended up in a locked cattle trailer without so much as a hoof print in sight. We also did a show on the Skinwalker Ranch. Go back and check it out. A few days later at 10 p.m., Pauline and Billy Combs were watching TV after a long day's work on the farm. They noticed a shadow cross their window and Billy jumped to get a look outside and right against his window was a figure of at least eight feet tall, its chest and waist filling the downstairs window. The mother ran upstairs to get the children and when she burst into their room, she was horrified to see that the creature was actually staring in through the children's upstairs window. His head so large it nearly filled the window completely. The creature backed away slowly and vanished and they called the police who sent an officer out and the policeman who visited the farm described them as the most frightened family he had come across in his 26 years as a police officer. Again, this kind of frightful taunting is exactly the kind of thing that comes to us through the old stories of the dark fairy folk very real beings from other worlds, the treacherous fae. In the days following this event, the Combs saw the UFO in the sky over their farm more than once, always silent, always glowing, and always departing at an impossible speed. And the Combs and the school kids weren't the only ones. Reports from all walks of life flooded in from all points across the areas surrounding and within what is called the Havens of Wales. Farmers, teachers, delivery boys, businessmen, maids, young and old alike reported seeing a glowing saucer of about 45 or 50 feet across moving silently, landing, taking off, and zipping around at all times of the day and night. Many people reported seeing very tall, alien-looking creatures eight feet tall or so in silver suits. The Air Force and the local authorities fielded hundreds of reports, but no official answers were given. One explanation put forth by an Air Force official claimed that a nearby factory employed silver heat-proof suits to handle certain aspects of a very hot manufacturing process and that someone may have taken one of those suits and used it as a hoax and this was what the farmers and others had seen and mistaken for an alien. 
But those suits were for a normal-sized person, and no one would mistake it for an eight-foot-tall alien. Wearing a fire suit wouldn't let you fill a downstairs window from the waist down and look through an upstairs window while standing on the ground outside. I've seen pictures of someone wearing that suit and it looks exactly like a guy in a rumply silver fireproof suit with tinted glass in the helmet part. It's just a debunking stretch. We see those all the time in these cases. Like the guy who always says people who see a UFO from the front porch of a home they've lived in for 20 years are actually seeing a star they never noticed. Or the guys who said the UFO at Rendlesham was the lighthouse. That's a good one. That's another UK UFO, a very famous incident. We dove into that story in episode 21. Be sure to give that a listen. It's one of our most popular episodes. Episode 21, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Part three, the Air Force Base and the Hotel. Royal Air Force Base RAF Brody, and that's B-R-A-W-D-Y, is at the northern end of St. Bride's Bay, just inland, and a short drive from the Broadhaven School. Some suggest that the UFO the kids at the school saw could have been a craft from the Air Force Base, and that is possible. But on the other hand, those kids were quite familiar with the common aircraft going into and out of the base. One boy in an interview said that the only thing besides a helicopter that could have landed in and taken off from the area behind the trees would have been a Harrier jump jet. This is an indication that these boys knew about the different types of aircraft precisely because they were near the RAF base. It's unlikely that they would have mistaken something they had seen many times before for the UFO. Flight Lieutenant Tony Cowan was the press officer for the RAF Brody Air Force Base at the time of the sightings. He received many reports from the residents seeing unidentified flying objects in those weeks and months after the school sighting. One of those came from the Haven Fort Hotel just south of the Broadhaven School. The Haven Fort Hotel had originally been an old smuggler's fort on the shores of St. Bride's Bay. It was turned into a hotel in the late 60s by Rose Granville and her husband who bought it in an abandoned state and fixed it up. The hotel is located on the coast about halfway between the Broadhaven School and the previously mentioned Coombs Farm. On the night of 19 April 1977, Hotel owner Rose Granville was awakened by a bright, pulsating light through her second-story bedroom window at the inn. She went to the window and saw two tall figures with long arms and long legs emerge from a glowing round craft on the hotel grounds. She said they were slim, walked in an uneasy or fragile manner, and had, quote, no features at all. She yelled, what do you want? Want, want? Through her opened window, and as she did, the beings retreated into the craft almost instantly, and the object rose in silence and vanished at an incredible speed. The heat of its departure pushed her back from the window. Mr. Granville returned from business in town the following day, and he searched the area where his wife claimed to have seen the craft land and the beings emerge. He found, in the bright coastal grass, a large, perfect circle of burned grass with a six-inch ridge around its circumference. He 
he took his teenage daughter out to the field and she too saw the landing spot. Mrs. Granville wrote a letter to the local police official, Nicholas Edwards, in which she stated, quote, This has left me greatly agitated and disturbed and not the least bit desirous of another encounter. Nicholas Edwards then wrote a letter to the Ministry of Defense and with it he sent Rose Granville's letter. The Ministry of Defense contacted Lieutenant Cowan at RAF Brody, who then visited the hotel and spoke in person to Rose Granville. Now I'm not sure how much time passed between the sighting and the landing and Lieutenant Cowan's visit, but Cowan said he was unable to find any evidence of a craft landing. Now presumably he's referring to the absence of the burnt ground and the ridge around the depression that the father and daughter say they found, and I find it hard to believe that if it was there, they wouldn't have shown it to him. And how long does it take something like that to go away really? A month at least for the grass to regrow, but like I said, I don't know how long of a time frame we're talking about here. This is just one of those inconsistencies we find in things like this. It's frustrating. So Cowan writes back to the Ministry of Defense and tells them he couldn't find anything on the hotel grounds in the way of physical evidence for a UFO landing. Then he goes on to say to them that if a UFO does land at RAF Brody, they will charge them normal landing fees and notify the Ministry of Defense immediately. Okay, that's very funny, but it's also an indication that this Lieutenant Cowan wasn't taking the whole thing seriously to begin with. That being the case, he may not have looked too hard for evidence while he was at the hotel. Both the Air Force Base and the Ministry of Defense concluded that nothing had happened there. Not only that, but the official word from the Ministry of Defense and RAF Brody to the Granville family was that they were not to talk about the incident. If nothing had happened, as they say, why would they care if the family talked about it or not? But before a regional investigator, Randall Jones Pugh, wasn't so easily convinced. He firmly believed in the sincerity and genuine concern of the residents he spoke with, and he never agreed with the official position that all of the sightings were hoaxes, spoofs, or lies. 450 of them? No way, I tend to agree. And now, this whole thing gets into some seriously paranormal territory, so I hope you're ready to get weird. I know you are. A few days after the visit from the Air Force officer, someone knocked at the hotel door in the middle of the night. Now, this hotel is on the coast, but it's not in a real busy area. And it's very dark at night. And being a small family-run hotel, the family was almost conditioned to notice any traffic heading their way. So when a knock came at the door without them hearing a car or seeing headlights come up the long drive, it seemed unusual. The daughter answered the door to find two men whom she described as identical twins, maybe in their 30s, in black suits, with hair so perfect and slicked back that it looked like patent leather. She noticed a new looking but older model car parked on the drive, which once again struck her as odd since they had heard no car approach and seen no headlights. 
She said the men had pale white skin that was perfectly smooth with no wrinkles, creases, or hair to be seen, such as facial hair or even eyebrows. When the men spoke, they both spoke the same exact words simultaneously in a single monotone, nearly robotic voice. They asked her if her mother was home and in a moment, Rose came to greet the men at the door. They said they would return later to have a long conversation with her and that was it. They got in the car and left. These descriptions of featureless pale men traveling in an antique car and having very odd speech and mannerisms is an exact description of the many men in black tales we hear of over and over after similar UFO events. There's a lot of theories as to what could be going on there and we did a whole show on men in black also, episode 23, so check it out if you want to go deeper into it. And here is where things get really weird. Remember the farm where Mark Marston and his aunt and uncle Combs had seen the tall aliens? Well, it turns out that two men fitting this exact description visited that farmhouse as well. Two twins in black suits with shiny, almost artificial-looking hair, pale, hairless white faces, and both speaking in creepy, unison, monotone voices. The crazy thing is that Rose and the Combs had been in touch during all of this, and they came to discover that these visits from the men in black had happened on precisely the same night and at the exact same time. A few days later, in the broad daylight of noontime, Rose Granville and her daughter were eating in their hotel cafe when they saw a shadow darken the windows. They went outside to see a silver saucer moving slowly and silently through the sky to the south. This was in the direction of the Coombs farm, and since Rose was friends with them, she telephoned them to be sure she wasn't imagining things once and for all. Pauline Combs answered and said that yes, they were watching the same thing. Pauline, her husband Billy, the grandparents, and all the children were just outside the door watching the same object that the women at the hotel were seeing. From the vantage point of the hotel, it looked as if the object descended into the sea. But Pauline at the farm, being closer to the object, said that it had in fact landed at Stack Rock Island, a small uninhabited rocky island just off the coast. But not that the object had simply landed on the island, but that the rock of the island had actually opened like a door and the craft had descended into the island. At this point, I start to wonder if some of the wheat on the Coombs farm had maybe gotten ergot poisoning. Now, we do have some history, though, quite a lot, in fact, of UFOs being seen under the surface of the ocean and coming out of and going into the ocean. Bill Cooper witnessed from the bridge of a surface submarine a UFO dive into and fly out of the ocean over and over as the submarine cruised along. Astrophysicist and NASA research scientist Dr. Kevin Knuth, and that's another same sounding first and last name, Kevin Knuth, so Kevin Knuth, Mark Marston, and Dave Davies. It's just weird. 
Anyway, Dr. Kevin Knuth brings up an interesting point I'd never thought of or heard described exactly like this before, which is that a liquid water ocean is a very stable environment, especially if you are talking about interplanetary travel. He explains that we now think that about one in every five stars could have a planet in what we call the habitable zone, which is a distance from the star, given its size and intensity, that would allow the planet to have liquid oceans on the surface. Furthermore, as you go from planet to planet, the atmospheres can be wildly different. Some planets have atmospheres that are extremely hot or extremely cold and air made of methane, hydrogen, helium, or even sodium vapor. But on any planet in the habitable zone that has liquid water oceans, you will find that the conditions of the water fall into a pretty narrow range when compared to the wide ranges of air temperatures and compositions. Liquid water is always within a certain range of temperature depending on mineral content and pressure and this is essentially constant across the universe. So if you were going from planet to planet, one way to be sure your time there fell into a certain range of temperatures would be to go from ocean to ocean. This is an interesting idea for sure. But in this case, we have witnesses saying they saw a UFO go into an island that opened up. I got nothing for you on that. That's just weird. So I have no deep summary for this case. It's a good one all around. Not a terribly long episode. We have multiple witnesses who saw the same or very similar looking crafts in the same area over a few months. Some of them actually saw what they describe as seven or eight foot tall aliens. What is that? They saw them on the ground both before and after seeing a landed craft. Those are close encounters of the third kind. UFO encounters in which an animated entity is present. As far as a UFO event, this one is as good as it gets short of capturing a creature or a landed craft. We do run into one snag, which is this. This was 1977 and still not a single photo of any of this. That's a red flag, especially since this was far from a one-time event. UFOs showed up over and over and even giant aliens over and over in some cases, especially at the farm and the hotel, over and over for weeks or months, and no one took a single photo ever? Okay, so maybe you missed the several chances you had to take a picture of a UFO when it was flying around. It's reasonable. This was pre-smartphones and all that, but we did have cameras then. Good ones. So, no picture of the UFO, fine, but the hotel owners never took a picture of a 40-foot burned circle in the ground where a UFO had landed on their property at a spot they could walk to in less than five minutes. They could see the hotel from the burned spot on the ground. They wrote a letter to the Ministry of Defense who sent an Air Force officer out to see the location. But they never took a photograph of the burn spot on the ground? Seriously? Also, is there any radar data from the times of the sightings that might show a craft in the area? There's an Air Force base within driving distance. It was pretty big, 45 feet or 50 feet across by all accounts, the UFO. If there's radar data, no one has found it that I know of. 
all in all, these are compelling stories that lack physical evidence from a time that at least some physical evidence would have been pretty easy to get. A solid close encounter UFO event nonetheless. Thank you sincerely for investigating the Broadhaven UFOs with me. Help me keep making episodes by becoming an RFA agent at patreon.com slash renegadefiles or through the link in the show notes, where you can help crowdfund the show with just a few bucks and in return get bonus episodes and all kinds of cool stuff. Thank you so much if you're an RFA agent already. You make the show work and you keep it ad-free for all of us. So join our mixed bag of rebels at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. It's easy. If you've never been to Patreon, just go check it out. And you can try it for a whole week for free. Don't be shy. Try it now and I'll see you in there. Cheers. Until our next adventure, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Rasta child. <laughs>